1: In 1994, Yale literary critic Harold Bloom created a massive list of the works he considered the standards of Western literature, beginning with the Bible. In 2016, two overly educated autodidacts, one a professional, the other an interested layman, set out to read every book on the list. Thus was born The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read every book in Bloom's list and along the way explore the whole notion of a canon to begin with. From Dante's Inferno to Ibsen's Dollhouse, from Don Quixote's Extremadura to Elizabeth Bennet's Hertfordshire, join Daniel and Claude as they provide critical commentary, analysis, and from-the-gut personal reactions for all of the books you are too lazy or hungover to read in undergrad. That's the Cannonball. This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes.
3: All right. Here I Mr. Pop... <laughs> <laughs> that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
4: Four score and seven years ago, when in the course of human events...
2: And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
5: There is not a black America, and a white America, and Latino America, and a America,
6: there's the United States of America. Hello and welcome to 10 American Presidents. This is one of those special shows uh, where I throw the format out the window and just have a conversation, Uh, a conversation with somebody who has produced some really interesting and thought-provoking work. Uh, I got a tweet. This guy was incredibly clever. He tweeted just about everybody online who has an interest in uh, the American presidency and basically said, I've done some work, have a look at this. And it made for a compelling read. So today I'm speaking to Misha Leibovitch and he's gonna tell us about this seminal work which he's done, which gives us hints and tips on the future of the American presidency by looking at past cycles. Hello Misha. how are you? Good, how you doing? I found your article utterly fascinating thank you and you uh, displayed it in a very digestible way so um, first off um, we have we have to look at the premise so the premise of, of your great article which is entitled how history predicts the 2020 election and the next 40 years uh, the, the fundamental premise is this is the first line which the next president of the united states will be a transformational progressive this person will shape american politics for the next 40 years. Here's why. Uh, very quickly, how so?
7: I started looking at um, cycles in mm-hmm. uh, in U.S. Um, presidential history. I think I've always loved U.S. history, just specifically. Maybe it's being a first generation American. Maybe I just like it. Who knows? Um, and I'm also like an engineering and science guy. I'm a tech entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always looking at for like patterns and whatever. Um, and so the 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 impetus, I remember in when, when Obama was running in 2008, he was talking about um, uh, why certain presidents were transformational, and he brought up Reagan, um, and how Reagan was transformational in a way that neither Nixon nor Clinton were. And I thought about that, and I started, you know, th- this notion was planned about transformational presidents. And then when Trump won in 2016, um, I started thinking, okay, well, what does this tell us about, about cycles, like, you know, within our own country, like, you know, comparing to other powerful countries throughout history, like, what does this mean? And so I decided to try to, um, to kind of map this out and see if there was any patterns. Um, and so um, when I was doing that, I realized that um, when you sort of take the presidents who are consensus um, agreed as transformational and going backwards, that's Reagan, uh, FDR, uh, TR, Lincoln, Jackson, and Washington in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um which actually corresponds very nicely, there's a um a, a political theory say called the the number of party systems. They say we're in the sixth party system right now um mm-hmm. since Reagan. And so I did that and then I in just literally in a spreadsheet and then I started filling out the other presidents from there going down and I just noticed these patterns. And it was just wasn't something I was looking for. Um I was actually my, my question going in was does Trump himself represent the start of a new era, maybe? Mm. Um, Yeah, I wanted to, you know, just for my own curiosity, answer that question. But what I saw was this curious pattern that um, after a transformational president, there's a reasonably, actually almost perfectly predictable pattern then of what happens after that. And,
6: and, And this is regardless of whether the president's party is voted out. You know, you still see this pattern, do you?
7: Yeah. So so basically these patterns are then dictated by elections, you know, so it's the people choosing freely every time. It's just, mm-hmm. it, it's interesting that, that, it, that it keeps happening in, in the same way. Just so notice these patterns and I just like color coded it to see like, oh, wow, it kind of goes, you know, transformer, same party, other party, same party, other party, same party, mm-hmm. boom. And then it happens again. Um, and so, you know, I saw that. Um, and then I was looking at sort of the, the, the rows across and I noticed that all the transformers had some stuff in common. Um, all of the other roles, which I named continuer, triangulator, reimaginer, precursor, and ender, all of them had similar characteristics. Now, I mean, president, presidents are complex figures, right? So mm-hmm. you can't just encapsulate an entire person in, in, in a neat label. Like, I get that. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it held reasonably well. Um, and so that sort of like got me looking into it. And then I did some other analysis from that.
8: There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dram- dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
6: So do you think that this 40-year cycle is specifically unique to American politics and its economic cycle? Or is this something which you can extrapolate throughout, let's say, uh, established Western democracies?
7: It's a good question. Um, and one that, you know, if I wanted to kind of f- further continue into this, I would start looking at, you know, UK prime ministers, US governors, like, you know, um, French presidents, like, you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, it is a reasonably consistent 40 year cycle, sometimes it's eight year more, sometimes it's eight years less, but um, but more or less about 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, that's approximately the length of like a, um, like a like a generation's 20 years, but like a sort of like a working generation, like like there's all new people roughly every every 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one would think, I mean, in the US, we have a very predictable cycle of elections every four years. Right. Um, and that's mm-hmm. held, you know, since since the founding. And so it's kind of weird that this pattern would hold, right? Because wars happen, recessions happen, all kinds of weird stuff happens, but this pattern holds. And the only thing I can think is that it must be generational um, in one form or another, um, where you get sort of um, one one president comes along and defines an era, right? And they Mm -hmm. basically define the political conversation for the next 40 years. I think that Obama, I happen to, to support him But I think that even he would probably say that he was not a transformational president. Um, I think if he was running today, he might have been, but you know, in 2008, which was the right time to him for him to run for his political career. Um, I think we were still very much in the Reagan era and all the discussion we were having was still in the framework that Reagan set up. And Obama kind of previewed, I think, what is to come. I think it's generational. Um, if that's true though. Then mm-hmm. one would think that it would hold in governorships in 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 other presidencies and prime ministerships um and so that's that's sort of um unknown right now to me um and, and something to look into but I would imagine you would see some sort of similar patterns where there's a stable democracy over you know a reasonably long period of time
6: that's me I'm, I'm kind of going back when I was reading this and without getting pencil and paper out, um, I went, OK, so 1945 is seen as a transformational moment in UK politics. Um, it's the end of the Second World War. Uh, Britain is no longer really a world empire. We still have one, but economically we're spent. And that Labour government under Clement Attlee uh, found the National Health Service. Um, so that's universal health for Everybody. It's the biggest uh, achievement. And, and then with that, then came the kind of post-war consensus. So even though the Conservative Party went to that election against that, when Churchill then comes into power in the early 1950s for the second time, he comes right. into power, he doesn't roll that back. Right. And then there is this post-war consensus, which lasts all the way until Thatcher in 1979. So your theory just about holds up you know, that Thatcher is the transformational uh, prime minister in Britain in 1979, which then leads on to the era of the individual, sure. as you as you would kind of term it. Absolutely. And I suppose, going back to your last point, that um, you would see potentially Barack Obama with his uh, Affordable Care Act as being precursor to much more radical state intervention into um, American society with this progressive, which will come next. So looking at your hypothesis, we're going to get what a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren with some kind of healthcare for all. But really what it's saying is that the state has a role in helping to equal out America's inequalities. Obama would be then that precursor.
5: Vice President Biden, members of Congress, in the American people. When I spoke here last winter, this nation was facing the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. We were losing an average of 700,000 jobs per month. Credit was frozen, and our financial system was on the verge of collapse. As any American who is still looking for work or a way to pay their bills will tell you, we are by no means out of the woods. A full and vibrant recovery is still many months away. And I will not let up until those Americans who seek jobs can find them, until those those businesses that seek capital and credit can thrive, until all responsible homeowners can stay in their homes that is our ultimate goal. But thanks to the bold and decisive action we've taken since January, I can stand here with confidence and say that we have pulled this economy back from the brink. I want to thank the members of this body for your efforts and your support in these last several months, and especially those who've taken the difficult votes that put us on the path to recovery. I also want to thank the American people for their patience and resolve during this trying time for our nation. But we did not come here just to clean up crises. We came here to build a future. So so tonight, I return to speak to all of you about an issue that is central to that future, and that is the issue of health care. I'm not the first President to take up this cause, but I am determined to be the last.
7: I think that these, um, these eras, they, they go back and forth. And I actually think that, you know, I happen to be more left-leaning, but I think it's actually very healthy for a system to, um, to, for the pendulum to swing one way or the mm-hmm. other. And sort of, I, you know, I'm going to write another article about this that I just have like the notes for right now, but I'll give you a little preview here. Um, I think that the, um, you know, it, it's like a forest, right? So, so a forest, you need trees to grow, right? Um, mm-hmm. and you're for it to be healthy. But then also, you need forest fires, like trees falling down, you know, occasional blights. I mean, you need things to happen. Otherwise, the forest gets overgrown and it's actually not healthy for the forest. So you need growing. And you need thinning, mm-hmm. and so the way I look at it, um, with the FDR era, which I called the collectivist era, um, that was an era to like invest in the future, um, invest in the country, and you had all these programs come out of the New Deal. Then you had, you know, um, uh, Kennedy and Johnson even further that as as sort of reimaginers, um, you know, in that same era. Era, and there was a lot of growth. But then, what happens after forty years of that? You get a whole new set of people um, who are who are all there. They were not there for the beginning of the era, so they have their own sort of um, different mentality. Um, human nature suggests that when you build things up, eventually, um, th- you know, systems become complacent. They become bloated. Um, people get very comfortable in, in doing what they're supposed to do, and that's not healthy either. So then Reagan comes in in in, in eighty, and if it wasn't Reagan, it would have been somebody else, um, and. I- while I don't you know, uh, necessarily support his policies, I do think that it's healthy for the system to have a, a back and forth, a growing and a thinning, and a growing and a thinning. It's sort of two steps forward, one step back, hmm. and that's actually okay. Um, and so in the same way that I think there will be a new FDR-ish in 2020, I think there will be a new Reagan in 2060. And that's totally natural and totally okay.
6: Can we quibble about Please, some of the um, the durations here? Because sure. All right. So looking at that era, so you've got the Transformer era, which is uh, 1932, first FDR administration to the end of Jimmy Carter. Right. And, that, and, and fundamentally what FDR does is the New Deal. Right. So it, this is significant state intervention into the American economy and sure. to, into American society. And that leads the Democratic Party to be the majority party for that period. And it only loses to Eisenhower, who was actually a pro-New Deal Republican in '52 and 1956. Sure. Um, by the time we get to Richard Nixon, um, there aren't any New Deal Democrats really still left in the party. At least there are, but they're all old, aren't they? They're old sure. and they're tired. And sure. by that point, the Democratic Party has been overtaken by beatniks and uh, <laughs> people who are very much the, the the product of the new kind of race relations which is sure. going on uh, oh, yeah, yeah. through America. So can we quibble and say that you've extended um, that period too long and that actually Richard Nixon is, um, is not just a precursor, but actually he is something else?
7: Mm. Okay, well, what would you
6: suggest? Good question. I don't know. Uh, but one thing that Nixon was, was, you know what, I actually agree with what you've said. Maybe maybe it's because um, I'm not putting enough thought in and the, your theory has actually blown me away. But I do really see, though, on a serious point, that by the time you had Kennedy in, in 1960 and Johnson, and Johnson very much was a New Deal Democrat, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, but Carter wasn't in, in, in the same regard. He's, he's a different generation, Jimmy Carter. For sure, And by the time of 1976, Americans aren't overtly fighting uh, the battles of civil rights. They've been enacted. So there is busing, whether busing worked or not. Busing is happening. State legislators and cities are accommodating that whether they want to or not. It feels to me like quite a different time. And almost like Carter and Nixon almost feel like an interregnum for me. As yeah, opposed it, to it kind, yeah. well, it, it kind of is.
7: Well, it kind of is in the same way that I think that when we, you know, if my theory holds, which, you know, mm-hmm. there's no reason it has to, but if it does, I think that Obama and Trump will kind of be viewed in the same way. Um, you say that, that Carter is no FDR, like for sure, but Trump is no Reagan either. You know, it, it, it like, mm-hmm. I, I kind of liken it to, um, to they're trying to sing the same songs. So um, I, I used to, uh, growing up, I went to Hebrew school, my, my family's Jewish. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we learn all these prayers, right? And I would sort of, like, just learn them through, like, memorization. But, you know, like, I knew enough Hebrew for my bar mitzvah, but, like, you know, I'm not, like, a fluent speaker or anything. And so I would sing these songs, and I would have sort of memorized them and memorized the sounds, right? But I didn't actually know really, 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 like, what it meant. It, so it doesn't, it doesn't come from the same, like, genuine place because I'm not actually a Hebrew speaker. And so I think that Trump, for example, is saying – A lot of these Reagan things, but it's like, it's like he's trying to sing in a different language and he doesn't know the words. You know, it's kind of like the same, uh, frameworks and trying to, uh, emulate to some degree, but it's just, it's sort of the end of an era. I mean, I think, you know, I I could be wrong. Mm. Carter and Trump will end up being seen, I think, as playing similar roles. Not, not to equate them in terms of their, performance or character or anything like that, just the roles that they played, I think will end up being seen pretty similar. We continue
2: to face a grave situation in Iran where our embassy has been seized and more than 60 American citizens continue to be held as hostages in an attempt to force unacceptable demands on our country. We're using every available channel to protect the safety of the hostages and to secure their release, along with the families of the hostages. I have welcomed and I appreciate the restraint that has been shown by Americans during this crisis. We must continue to exhibit such constraint. Despite the intensity of our emotions, the lives of our people in Iran are at stake. I must emphasize the gravity of the situation. It's vital to the United States and to every other nation that the lives of diplomatic personnel and other citizens abroad be protected and that we refuse to permit the use of terrorism and the seizure and the holding of hostages to impose political demands. No one should underestimate the resolve of the American government and the American people in this matter.
6: One of the interesting things uh, that you had in your article was you have the rankings and there are kind of received wisdom on presidential rankings some presidents might go up and down slightly but right. you know number one is always Lincoln number two is always Washington right. and then there is a general consensus of who the good ones are right. and who the bad ones are um does that then mean then that the enders and really we should maybe go through uh, your definitions um so you've got the transformer so that's your transformative president right you have your continuer, which kind of makes sense. And that is uh, the, the, the president who really just continues the program, the vision of the Transformer.
7: Yeah, the, 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 the sidekick, for lack of a better term.
6: Mm-hmm. Then you've got the Triangulator. Uh, describe that person to me.
7: So, so to me, the Triangulator is the other party who wasn't the Transforming Party being like, oh, OK, we're in a new era. It's a new ball game. There's new rules. There's new conversation. What do we do? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, Clinton very much was like the third way. Um, mm-hmm. How do we be a... It was a very different kind of liberalism than the classic, you know, liberalism of the, you know, 30s and 40s to, to 60s and 70s. Um, and so it was like, here's how... Here's the Democrats' answer to this era. And the same the with them with Eisenhower. Yeah. Federal crime bill. Federal yeah. crime bill. Right. Perfect and, and, example. and welfare bill and like all, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and then in the same way Eisenhower was a very different kind of Republican than had come along previously. So mm-hmm. um, and if you look back, I mean, uh, Wilson was a very different kind of Democrat than previously and and so on, you know, um, going back. And I think it's just the other party after 12 years or, or longer of being out of power, kind of like figuring out the new game yeah. and, and how to adjust.
2: Mr. President, what do you say to Senator Dole's point that that this election is about keeping one's word?
3: let's look at that when i ran for president i said we'd cut the deficit in half in four years we cut it by 60 percent i said that our economic plan would produce eight million jobs we have ten and a half million new jobs we're number one in autos again record numbers of new small businesses i said we'd put pass a crime bill that would put a hundred thousand police on the street ban assault weapons and deal with the problems that ought to be dealt with, with capital punishment, including capital punishment for drug kingpins. And we did that. I said we would change the way welfare works, and even before the bill passed, we'd move nearly two million people from welfare to work, working with states and communities. I said we'd get tougher on child support, and child support enforcement's up 50%. I said that I would work for tax relief for middle-class Americans. The deficit was bigger than I thought it was gonna be, and I think they're better off, all of us are, that we got those interest rates down and the deficit down. The Republicans talk about it, but we're the first administration in anybody's lifetime looking at this program to bring that deficit down four years in a row. We still gave tax cuts to 15 million working Americans, and now I've got a plan that's been out there for two years. It could have been passed already. And so I think when you can look at those results, you know that the plan I've laid out for the future has a very good chance of being enacted if you'll give me a chance to build that bridge to the 21st century.
7: So then we have the reimaginator. Yeah, yeah, reimaginer. And and that's like kind of the the second wind where um it's trying to kind of re, you know, it's like the original party then lost the white house for a bit to the uh to the triangulator and then they're like, "Okay, you know what? We got this. Um we're going to do it again." And it's basically very similar to the transformer with like a few adjustments, you know, cuz it's typically something like 20 years later um with a few adjustments, but by mm-hmm. and large um uh, or 12 to 20 years later, um, by and large, um, the uh, the reimaginer, it's like Bush, you know, or, or a, George W. Bush was sort of like a lot of the st- like very similar to Reagan policies, but like a slightly different take, you know, uh, Kennedy mm-hmm. and Johnson, very similar to what FDR was trying to do, but like a modernized take.
6: And then we have the precursor who we talked about potentially with Obama, and that is the person that gives you the hint of the next era.
7: Correct. Yeah, you can see where things are going. It's not quite ready to get there yet, but um, it, gives you, it gives you a hint of what's to come.
6: Okay, and then the ender, which we've, we've also talked about. Now, is it possible, and this is the question I was going to ask, ask before, and I realized we hadn't actually gone through different categories of sure. different types of presidency. Sure. Is it possible, considering there are these historical rankings of how good uh, a president actually was in office and how um, important they've been in the in the history and the development of the United States, is it possible for an ender to be a great president? Not a transformative one, because he's an ender, but can an ender still be a great president?
7: Hmm. History would suggest no. Um, you know, like the historical patterns w- would suggest that. And hmm. the reason being that if this cycle is correct, you no, know, if it is, then... Um, then it's really hard at the very tail end of like when something is expiring to do yeah. something great. Um, and, and that's also almost juxtaposed because the enders tend to be your lower ranked presidents than your Transformers who come next just by dint of, uh, of, of comparison. End up being super great looking. Like like FDR looks great compared to Hoover. Um, you know, and uh, and and, and uh, Reagan was incredibly, arguably more effective than uh, than, than Carter, Carter. Um, was, it, it was before. More, that. It
6: was more dynamic. But if you look back at the some of the instances of Carter's presidency, you had uh, Carter is in the shadow of the oil crisis. Sure. Um, He's having this death battle. America's having a death battle ideologically with the Soviet Union, and in hindsight by 1979, it was winning that battle. wasn't apparent right. in 1979 though wasn't apparent at all. Yeah. You still had African countries becoming Soviet client states, sure, etc so. and then um, you have the Iran hostage crisis. So let's say if um, so how much of this is truly situational? And how much of this is, well, you know what, your time was up. Because you could easily see that, um, you could easily flip at least one of those things, which is that he could have led that mission um, into, you know, to to get uh, those American hostages. And if he'd have managed to pull that off, he would have been, you know, potentially a somewhat more popular president. He could have gone into that 1980 election, you know, with a fighting chance of winning.
7: For sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of you're asking the, you know, core fundamental question is like, is this incredibly fatalist? And mm-hmm. just like, like I'm claiming here as just some dude that I know what's going to be the party of every president for the next 40 years. That's a big claim. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not doing that lightly. And I'm doing it with heavy caveats that no reasons that patterns have to hold. But if they do, here's what it'll be. Have you ever read uh, the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov?
6: You know what? I listened to it on a long Canadian car drive up to Perry Sound 20 years ago, The Mule, and I just found it that uh, utterly brilliant and fascinating.
7: For sure. Well, you know, to, to, to the listeners here who, who who don't know, you know, Isaac Asimov, you know, famous science famous science fiction writer, and there's this foundation series. Actually, um, The Mule, who you referenced, one of my initial questions was, is Trump the Mule? You know, like with, with such like great... Um, uh, like seemingly almost unshakable control of his supporters emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a question I asked myself. I read that when I was a kid um, and it it fascinated me because, um, you know, Harry Seldon, the, the, the fictional founder of, uh, of, uh, what was it? Um, Oh my God. Psychohistory. Uh, 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 Psychohistory. Right. Yeah. Um, Was, was basically able to say, look, we can't predict individual actions here or there for a person or even a planet or whatever for kind of smaller scale things. But over mm-hmm. the broad scope of things, we you know things are somewhat predictable, right. and so that's kind of where I'm operating from—a much much smaller version of that, right? Hmm. But I'm like, look, there's all kinds of things you can mention: Iran hostage, stagflation, you know, um, the Berlin Wall. I mean, there's all kinds of like historical events, you know, that, that populate. And yet, despite the seeming randomness of that happening a pattern still holds. And and so it's weird, right? It's like, I I don't have a great explanation other than, you know, events may push things here or there and like, you know, slightly manipulate things. But by and large, like these large scale patterns that have to do with millions of us, hundreds of millions of us trying to live together and sort this out. And like, how does society think? Like if if society Hmm. is one brain, how does that brain think? How does that brain go through through cycles? And um, you know, look, I'm sure if something were to happen that you know, I'm sure the pattern could be disrupted one way or the other. There's like something happens right before an election, some crazy war starts, and the incumbent holds on or something like that. But I still think that that might disrupt patterns a little bit. But by and large, if patterns are real and if there is a deeper um, uh, reason behind them, sociologically speaking. Then I think they will by and large hold over long periods of time.
6: So, really, what you're talking about is a difference in the weather and
7: climate. That's a, that's a great way to put it. Yes.
6: All right. So, okay. Um, one of the kind of like stunning things for me was look, looking, at, looking at your work and, and the data is, as we've kind of said before, there is a consensus around who have been the best and the worst American presidents. Right. And historians love to do these lists right. all the time. Sure, so sure, sure. But you really noticed something um, when you put together your rankings of whether somebody was a transformer, a continuer, a triangulator, et cetera, et cetera, and an ender, you really noticed something. So tell us exactly what you noticed in the data.
7: So, you know, I, I initially made this structure, and uh, you know, I, I noticed who are the transformational presidents, and then who are the roles, and so on. But, um, I wanted a little bit more rigor because, you know, it's just kind of like my opinion and like, you know, what I remember from school and my own research otherwise. And mm-hmm. so I took these historical rankings, which, you know, they're not like super scientific, but they're, they're reasonably, they're kind of directionally correct, let's say. Mm-hmm. And uh, although there's plenty of room for debate. And then what I did is I made a graph where I put the presidents in order sort of like left to right and I just put their rankings, you know, one to, I guess, 45 and how they are now. Now, I mean, as presidents are newer, um, their ranking may change more over time, you know, because it's fresher. It's hard to have a good perspective. But and, and when you sort of graph it out initially, it just looks like sort of a random scatter plot. Um, just pre- good presidents, bad presidents sort of scatter all over the place. But then I broke it out into the eras that I've defined here. let start with a transformer and go to an ender roughly every, you know, 40 years, give or take. And then I I just did trend lines for each one of those eras. And I noticed something that was like immediately visually arresting where um, every single era started with a high-ranking president and then ended up with a low-ranking president. And in between, there was a sort of like downward downward trend. It, it's not perfectly along the line. But more or less, when you have the data and then you color code it and then you put those lines in for each era, it – definitely looks like um, a bunch of different eras. And that to me was the first hint where I'm like, okay, well, I have this pattern. It seems to be borne out to some degree by um, as good as we can get in terms of numerical data. You know, rankings are are a reasonable proxy. And the same pattern repeats again and again. Good president, mediocre presidents, bad president. And just the cycle repeats and repeats. And that, to me, um, was pretty visually interesting and, you know, further um, confirmation that there might be something here.
6: There's two kind of outliers in that, though, is that Obama is ranked as an above-average president. Correct. And in your
7: realignment era, that doesn't pan out, does it? Trend line is still down, but not nearly as steep. Um, so so I'll talk about realignment and then, and then Obama. Realignment was kind of weird because you had a great president in Lincoln immediately followed by a historically bad president in johnson Mm -hmm. and that wasn't because of an election it was because of an assassination Mm -hmm. and so that's sort of like an accident of history that like normally someone like johnson wouldn't have gotten elected right then and then you also at the tail end of that have mckinley who um as an ender in my parlance would usually be ranked lower but he was actually kind of a mid-ranked president Definitely, if you take Johnson out, because that was more just like an accident that happened, then the line looks better. And then if you just accept that McKinley was a bit of an anomaly, sort of like straddling two eras, if you take those two outliers out, then the line looks just like the others. I mean, that's easy to do It's say, oh, I'll just take my data, just take out the ones I don't like, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I understand that's an easy cop-out, but hmm. um, I'm very comfortable doing that with Johnson because, again, just sort of yeah. an accident. Um, less so with McKinley, but but also I've said realignment was – kind of a weird era you know honestly it was kind of lincoln good johnson bad and everyone else just kind of in the middle as america was trying to figure out who are we now and then obama you know it's hard to say because um obama you know his ranking right now is somewhere in like the i think maybe like you know 14 15 ish you know Mm -hmm. like on average i like obama i volunteered for him in 2008 and everything it's hard to tell historically how he's going to shake out because we're still so near to it There is a tendency to elevate the presidents we like and to look negatively on the presidents we don't like. I'd be interested to see in 40 years what Obama's, uh, legacy is. I suspect that he probably ends up somewhere in the ranked 15 to 20 would be my guess, um, over time. Or, you know, or, or maybe, maybe I'm wrong and maybe he, you know, was a transformer before his time and all that. But, Uh, again, I think even he would admit that 2008 was the right time for him to run for his political career. But even he said in the initial quote that got me thinking about this in the first place, that he doesn't view himself as some sort of transformational figure. Hmm. Um, You know, he aspires to do the best that he can. But even he was talking about that. We're all sort of prisoners of the era that we're in and we do the best we can. But we're also subject to broader cycles than ourselves.
6: Just to end up with Obama, do you think that maybe Obama's ranking will never really be a true one because he's the first non-white president. And that, and because of that reason, historically, it will gain much more weight and credence in that this is a symbol of America being true to its founding principles and ideals. So because of that, it'll always be, you know, maybe given an extra five places points.
7: For sure. You know, it, it could be. And, and there's certainly something striking about you look at a wall of U.S. presidents and, like, it's same, 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 different, right? You know, and, and I think that then after that, you're going to see a lot more, you know, diversity going forward, um, you know, as we just become a more inclusive country.
9: This is a CBS News special report. I'm Katie Couric at CBS News Election Headquarters in New York. And we have breaking news, momentous news, really. CBS now estimates because of victories in California, Washington, Oregon, and hawaii cbs projects that senator barack obama of illinois will be the next president of the united states he defeats john mccain the senator from arizona and vietnam war hero and no matter whom you voted for you'd have to agree this is an incredible milestone in the history of this country a century and a half after the constitution abolished slavery and guaranteed blacks the right to vote four decades after the passage of the civil rights act voters have chosen our first african-american president bob schieffer and jeff greenfield as we watch these dramatic pictures and with all due respect i think we probably want to stay on those pictures instead of shots of any of us i mean it is so incredible to see these crowds the culmination of a two-year campaign and a lot of hopes and dreams of so many americans
2: katie this is more
8: than an election night in america this is a momentous night in the history of our
7: country. I think actually, you know, it's interesting, like he'll probably get bonus points for that, you know, as he did have to overcome, you know, historical odds. He was the first, right? And there's a lot to be mm-hmm. said for that. And and sometimes those little also kind of quirks of history can add, like, you know, Nixon probably would be ranked higher if he didn't end up having Watergate. Like, you know, otherwise, founded the EPA, like he went to China, he did a lot of interesting stuff, right? Um, but then all anyone ends up remembering is Watergate, you know, probably to his detriment. The fact that Obama was the first president of color probably helps him, you know, on the positive end. You know, you're right. He, he, he may gain, um, a couple points. And also, if in fact it looks like he was indeed the precursor to, um, to then who ends up being a transformational president. I think he might even jump up even a little bit further. If if like, let's say we get a Medicare for all or whatever, some other kind of like more encompassing healthcare system, and then people look back to Obamacare being like the first step in that, he probably will get bonus points from that too. But arguably precursors – might even be ranked a little bit you know better cuz enders are usually lower but precursors because they're sort of the hint of what's to come which end up ends up being a high ranking president they probably get so end up getting some credit for that as well as they should
6: considering that the speed of communication has rapidly increased let's say since I was going to say since 1945 let's forget that since 1999 are we not potentially going to see these cycles speed up, so twenty to forty years becomes twenty years?
7: I mean, so communication is getting faster, but again, all this stuff has happened throughout history. Like the internet's much faster than phones, but then phones were much faster than telegraph, and telegraph was much faster than letters, and letters were much faster than I don't know, smoke signals or whatever. Whatever people did, you know, uh, mm. uh, before that, right? And so with each of these technological advances, I do think things change. But I think given in American politics specifically, incumbency is such a strong um, force in my pattern here, really the only people who don't get two terms are continuers and enders. Um, Everyone else basically gets gets two terms because incumbency is so strong. And so could it be like, you know, I have an error here in, in my calculations that's 32 years. And I mean, even then, if you, if you took away a couple of the um, terms, it could be as short as, you know, um, 24 years. But I still think that by and large, if this pattern holds, then it'll still be 40 plus or minus 8-ish.
6: And I think it's an interesting point. And an important point that what you say is that basically it's people going into the workforce and coming out of the workforce. That seems to really kind of underpin this, doesn't it? That At the start, the end of any era, you don't have the same people who have their levers on political or economic power. It's a completely yeah. different generation.
7: Well, it's the same. It's it's different people in, in the workforce as a whole. And then also in the political workforce, yeah. you know, there's yeah. there's a whole group of people, you know, Probably, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people who like, you know, or maybe more who like work in just the realm of politics and they turn over, you know, so the conventional wisdom of one generation ends up being overturned by a new generation that, you know, believes things are different and they are and wants to leave its own mark.
6: Mm. So if you go back through your actual eras, so you have the founding era, which is 1788, George Washington, through to John Quincy Adams, and that is incredibly neat because. They are all the founders. OK, John Quincy Adams wasn't a founder, but right. he was very much in that mold, wasn't yes. he? You know, he's the son of a president and right. he was still somewhat noblesse, noblige And he was an intellectual. He was a thinker very much in, in, the, um, in the mold of mm-hmm. um, the other American presidents. And then sure. you have this radical shift in right. 1828 with Andrew Jackson, who is proto-Trump. There's no yes. two ways about it. They both sure. have cra- crazy hair and <laughs> they very much were, at least gave the affect of being from the people. Right. And, but Jackson was truly a self-made man. He, was, yep. he was poor, grew sure. up poor, made his fortune, but he wasn't an intellectual. He wasn't a right. thinker in the way that the founders were. So go through that populist era for me just very briefly. Martin Van Buren was his vice president, right? who then stands. Okay, John Tyler, we can't really talk about William Harrison because he wasn't around long enough, but John Tyler, who is the first Whig, in what way is he basically the triangulator of the populist era, would you say?
7: You know, and and so I should caveat that the further back we go, um, the less, like, I personally, you know, am, am, you know, I I, I did research into all these folks, but my, my knowledge is still shakier on the Tyler administration than, say, you know, the Eisenhower administration, Tom mm-hmm. was actually interesting because he was elected as a Whig with Harrison, but then became an independent, so to speak. But basically, um, you know, you had Jackson and Van Buren kind of start with like – what now is sort of the modern party system ish, right? Because you yeah. know, look at like Washington was nonpartisan, Adams was federalist, that was still like a long time ago. And then the next four presidents were all Democrat Republicans. Like they they were all. So it the, the dint of their roles was more by like their personalities than their than their parties. You know, I think what you had is that you had this party being established um with Jackson Van Buren. And that was by the way, coincided with when um um, more people got the right to vote when it wasn't mm. only like landowners anymore. So uh, arguably 1824, which Jackson almost won, it's kind of it was kind of very controversial, um, that election. And then 1828, when he actually won, were the first elections where like a bunch of people got to vote that mm. that never got the, to vote The great
1: before. unwashed, the great unwashed, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs>
7: right. And, and so that was a new era, right? In
1: 1789, George Washington won the Electoral College with 100% of the vote. But whose vote was it? Probably not yours. Only 6% of the entire United States population was allowed to vote at all. Voting was a right that only white male property owners were allowed to exercise. By the 1820s and 1830s, the American population was booming from the East Coast into the Western frontier. Frontier farmers were resilient, self-reliant, and mostly ineligible to vote because they did not own land. As these new areas of the nation became states, they typically left out the property requirement for voting. Leaders such as Andrew Jackson, the United States' first common man president, promoted what he called universal suffrage. Of course, by universal suffrage, Jackson really meant universal white male suffrage. All he emphasized was getting rid of the property requirement for voting, not expanding the vote beyond white men. By the 1850s, about 55% of the adult population was eligible to vote in the U.S. Much
0: better than six percent, but far from everybody. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music, where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free
1: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
7: So then you get the Whigs who were kind of like the proto-Republicans, you know, who ended up sort of becoming, I mean, you know, uh, Lincoln was a Whig before he was a Republican. And so I think that's just the other party being like, okay, here's a whole new thing. Here's these Democrats. They have like a... Like, I'd say an arguably like more partisan perspective than before, like the Democrat Republicans, everyone was Democrat Republicans. And then it kind of splits. And then you have one, and then you have the other side, which is trying to figure it out. And by the way, you know, these party identities don't hold. Like, like, like Andrew Jackson was a Democrat and Lincoln was a Republican. But if they were alive today, they would likely be in the opposite Mm -hmm. parties. You know, those identities change over time.
6: Only in American politics. So I have to keep on saying this to my my American friends all the time, that Americans say this all the time, that, you know, oh, parties change over time. Not in the Western European perspective. The Tory party, the Conservative party, has always been right of centre in in the United Kingdom. The Democratic Socialist in, I don't know, in Spain have always been democratic socialist. The Christian Democrats in Bavaria, sorry, in Germany, because they're called the Christian Democratic Union, I think, in Bavaria, have always been right of center. America is very peculiar in this regard. And I have to always pull Americans up when, when they say this and stuff.
7: Well, you know, though it's it's arguably it's only really changed once, right? Like, like you have like the Democrats and the Republicans then and now. And at some point, it they it switched yeah. you know it was kind of arguably with i don't know the the ele- i i remember in in history class when we were learning about roosevelt and it was like a, a, a fdr rather and it was yeah. a big thing where all of a sudden the coalitions very much changed um mm-hmm. uh, with roosevelt's election and you had people that were formerly republican voters you know, saying like, uh, they were convincing them, listen, the Democrats is actually the party for you now. Mm. Um, you know, and I, th- I think these coalitions, the, the changing is one of actually the things that causes eras um, or era change. I think that right now, for example, one reason why I have more confidence that we're going to enter a new era is that the coalitions don't really make sense right now. The Democratic coalition, the Republican coalition, and in both parties, you sort of have differences in social policy and in both parties you have differences in like in economic policy and you have the haves and the have-nots in both it, with republicans for example putting like wealthy wall street bankers and rural southern evangelicals in the same party doesn't make a ton of sense um, uh, it
6: doesn't it doesn't does make a ton of sense if you look at the last 150 odd years worth of socio-economic history in in the western world but maybe those economic labels are just less important now and maybe that is the start of the new era that it's not about economic label it's about identity what i identify as i am a white american i am an other is actually more important than my economic status
7: Yeah, I mean, it it could break down around identity, um, or it could cleave even more cleanly along economic lines. One could argue that if there was a Democratic candidate in 2020 who could speak to both the the current coalition, but also this coalition of people who are a lot of Trump's base, but who aren't materially improving economically under this administration, but are sort of Mm -hmm. like being brought along through other kind of emotional um, uh, tactics, one could very much see them coming into the Democratic side. And then one could also see the elites that are on the Democratic side end up going to the Republican side. And you might end up actually having a party of haves versus a party of have-nots. Like, you know, it it might kind of like split down the middle or it might cleave totally along the lines of identity. I don't know for sure, but I suspect that the uneasy coalitions we have today – are signs that the, the fire hasn't started yet, but there's a lot of smoke. I think most people think like the way it is right now is weird. When you have all that tension built up, usually it like changes in a big way all at once.
4: It is an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. And I will tell you why. Because you guys are doing exactly what has to be done in this country. You are organizing at the grassroots level. You are standing up and fighting back against Trump's racism and sexism and homophobia and religious bigotry. You are fighting for a government that represents all of us and not just the 1%. Thank you very much for what you're doing. The crisis that we are facing today is not complicated. That we have a government that ignores the needs of working people, ignores the needs of minorities, ignores the needs of women, yet works overtime for wealthy campaign contributors and the 1%. And what our job is, is not radical, it's what the American people want. They want a government which represents all of us, not just the people on top.
6: All right, so I'm, I must admit, your populist era, as you so dub it, through to the re- end of the realignment era, the two eras of American political history, which I know the least. Obviously, I know Jackson, and obviously we know Lincoln and the Civil War. Right. Um, so the populist era is a populist era because... Give me two lines.
7: What you said before, that was the great unwashed or like, or, you know, before, before was it?
6: They come into the franchise. Okay. Yeah. It's a
7: whole new thing. You got twice as many voters or I I don't don't know how how many, but a ton more.
6: Ah, Okay. All right. All white men basically get the vote at, at that point. Right. Regardless of whether they have property or not.
7: Right. Exactly.
6: Um, but we still have the Electoral College just to dampen down any craziness sure. that goes on. All right, uh, you know, So the, the oligarchs there, the political oligarchs, are still holding their hand, hands on the tiller. And it's the, the, uh, the founding fathers put that in as uh, just to hold back extreme democracy, if needs be. Sure. All right. Great. So then we have the realignment era. You called it the realignment era because...
7: It just seems like it was America finally reckoning, uh, reckoning with its original sin or, you know, this original, I mean, not only a sin, but like a really unsustainable system of slavery. You could have almost guessed in the beginning that this was going to come to a head at some point. You know, it's just hard to have two systems that are that different in in the same country. And then, you know, we had the Civil War to finally sort that out through a lot of blood. And then it's sort of like... Realigning. Now, you know th- there was a couple different names I considered. Like, well, that re- that, that
6: was what I was going to ask you because it, surely it's a, a period of, really, of reconstruction, but you didn't want to use that word
7: because reconstruction already has a very specific meaning, um, mm-hmm. which is like the basically the Grant through um, Hayes, I think, or Grant through Arthur, um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's that's kind of what reconstruction already means. So, I, so I stayed away from that word.
6: Realignment means exactly that America is coming to, um, uh, as, as dealt with its original sin, the fundamental contradiction between the Declaration of Independence and its right. aims and its right. noble aims, and the fact that at that point, what, one in every five Americans were held in right. bondage, <laughs> right. right? So there's a realignment. Again, right, I, I know that Grover Cleveland was fat, I know. Oh, was it Chester Arthur? I did not know. there's some fat presidents around there. Go on. Uh,
7: what, uh, Taft was the one that got stuck in a bathtub. Oh no, no, Taft
6: is the super fat one. Right. And then Grover <laughs> Cleveland is the one who looks like that actor Crumbs. Anyway, I, I'm going I'm to move on. I'm going I'm to move on. Surely. That era is broken up into two. And I'm thinking about this economically as opposed to politically, because as I I hold my hand up, right, if somebody does um, a podcast about American history and then also another show about um, American politics, my detailed knowledge of the 1880s to to 1900 American politics is pretty scant in terms of I know the names of the presidents. I couldn't tell you what their signature is. Achievement right. was, and I think that's in part because isn't that the the Gilded Age? That's right. that's robber corporate barons. Robert so barons, can't yeah. you n- neatly um, divide that era into two? That this is corporate um, America. It's your Carnegies and your Rockefellers who um, really do have their uh, stranglehold on on American economy. You have got sure. a mass wave of immigration coming from Southern Europe, Eastern sure. Europe, and it transforms America. So right. that to me feels like two eras put together.
7: It might be, and and the realignment's also a weird one. You know, I say this in the piece, like. I have five different presidents jammed into the Continuer slot on that one, just because mm-hmm. like, look, patterns aren't perfect. Um, And after the Civil War was a really weird time. You know, it was like trying to put the country back together. There was just a lot of uncertainty and, and a lot of like trying to figure out what the country is going to be after this like huge, huge trauma. You know, you have Cleveland serving non-consecutive terms. You have um, McKinley as probably the highest ranked what i call an ender who doesn't really fit neatly into that i mean he kind of straddles the realignment era and the progressive era so there's a lot of weird things about that era it's not the the best holding of the pattern but it does a decent job i mean cuz you know cleveland is both what i would call a triangulator and a precursor he was arguably a triangulator cuz he was the first democrat elected in what like uh you know 24 years Mm -hmm. um but he's arguably not a precursor to tr at all there there are things that don't hold that well the reason why i wouldn't say necessarily that it's a new era is in my theory eras start with transformational presidents and i don't think there's any argument that cleveland or harrison or any of those folks were transformational and so that's the reason why jenny that's
6: interestingly um doing doing the work and the research that I have done on 10 American presidents, Grover Cleveland, until the 1960s, was seen as a lion of the Democratic Party. Mm. If If you go back and look at footage of party conferences, Grover Cleveland was the man, and in part... I believe it was because he was the first Democrat in like forever to actually yeah. to gain office again. Sure. But as, as you said, you know, the one of the reasons why he's fallen massively out of favor is because he represents a Democratic Party, which is now more akin to the Republican Party.
7: Right. Well, and, and, and of course, of course, he'd be considered a lion because, I mean, he was the literally the only Democratic president in a 52 year span. From, hmm. from 1860 to 1912. So, of course, you know, like, like any party is going to look back to its, like, perhaps more recent-ish achievements yeah. um, with, uh, with pride. But, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, but, but, as but history goes.
6: If we were uh, doing this interview, if it was possible <laughs> to do this interview, let's say, in uh, 1910, we would actually say that Grover Cleveland was a transformational president. We would.
7: Hmm. If we're doing it in 1910. So that would have been... I mean, it's all easier with the hindsight of history, right? like 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 most things while you're living them don't necessarily seem transformational sure. or it's it's hard when you're living through something to be like, this is actually historic right or or future generations will look to this time as being historic. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps, um I am not an expert on the achievements of you know either of the Cleveland administrations, but I know that at least since then, historically, tr and lincoln seem to be held in significantly higher regard.
6: no question of that no question of that hence i'm saying i was su- totally surprised looking back at the democratic party conference of 1960 okay. yeah and you can actually see the the images and there's massive pictures of grover cleveland and ditto 1948 with truman like he was seen as um, a lion of the party Sure. Not at all. Now history has been uh, not so kind to his legacy. Sure. He Just sure. said you just a run-of-the-mill president.
7: Kind of, but you know, but but middle's not bad. There's a lot of presidents on the lower tier. So mid-tier, as far as it goes, you know, not too bad.
6: Uh, that was the realignment era, and then we have the, the progressive era, which I think everybody kind of has an idea of what what that is. Uh, it, you kind of start it with Theodore Roosevelt, and I think most people do, and he he is your uh, transformer, right. And then we have uh, big fat Taft.
2: Uh, we have
6: a little bit of uh, semi-fascist Wilson, uh, and then we have Warren Harding uh, with him and his lovers. And then, um, and then we have Calvin Coolidge, who uh, right. never said a word. And then we end up with Hoover, and he does right. perfectly seem to fit your model. Though there is no precursor there, though is
7: there? Yeah, yeah. Th- th- that's the only one in my model where they're really just is no precursor to FDR as far as far as I could tell. You know, all the other ones I was able to kind of like at least whether closely or at least semi-closely make a case mm-hmm. there. But yeah, the Progressive Era doesn't seem to be a precursor. I don't have a good explanation for that. That's why the model's not perfect and there certainly could be holes or things in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one where just for one reason or another um, history didn't end up that way. My
8: comment is. This broadcast tonight marks the beginning of the mobilization of the whole nation for a great undertaking to provide security for those of our citizens and their families who through no fault of their own face unemployment and privation during the coming winter. As an important part of our plans for national unity of action in this emergency, I have created a great national organization, under the leadership of Mr. Walter Gifford, to cooperate with the governors, the state, and the local agencies, and with the many national organizations of business, of labor and of welfare, with the churches, fraternal and patriotic societies, so that the countless streams of human helpfulness, which have been the mainstay of our country in all emergencies, may be directed wisely and effectively.
6: And going back to the mule and Isaac Asimov and uh, psycho history, uh, right. regardless of whether there's going to be a Wall Street crash, we were always going to get that massive uh, realignment.
7: I don't know. I think these things like feed off each other, like the president makes mm-hmm. the role and the role makes the president because we're all, you know, small pieces in, in a larger story. And, you know, like no, none of these folks going into office is like trying to do a bad job. Or trying to do something that's going to be viewed by historic, by historians later unfavorably. Like, I, I'm not a supporter of the, of the, of the current president. And, and I, I'm, I'm trying as I talk about this thing to try to stay more nonpartisan because like, cause I didn't make Trump an ender in my model as a screw you. It's just, I just went where the data took me and it just happened to be that way. But I just personally also happened to not be a supporter. You know, it's actually interesting. So I, I do think that history will end up, um, looking at Trump likely unfavorably, um, you know, and, and I, I don't say that as, a, as a, I, I I'm trying not to say that as a partisan. I'm just trying to say it as a, you know, as neutral as, as observers as I can mm. be. And what's interesting, there's another pattern in if American history. If nothing else,
6: if nothing else, to try and be as fair as to Trump as you can, he's broken so many presidential norms that he almost feels Potentially transformational, but you can't see where this can go if you extrapolate it.
7: Right. Well, exactly. And and that was my initial thought. I was like, okay, well, is Trump the start of a new era? Like, let, let's examine this. Um, at the end of the day, I, I suspect he'll he'll actually lose in the next election, and we'll, and we'll get a transformational progressive. Um, but there's another interesting pattern in American history that I didn't put in the article because it was getting too long. But um, mm-hmm. here's another sort of interesting thing that I that I observed. I say the cycles go of the eras approximately every forty years, but there is an every fifty-year pattern that goes back um, several hundred years, and that is of presidents that are sort of like significantly more corrupt than than, than usual. I'm sure every president has some some huh. shady stuff they do, et cetera. I'm not saying anyone's perfect or anyone's an angel, but but by and large. Um, you got, so by the time the Trump stuff shakes out, it's going to be, you know, 2020. Then you go back and so that's the 2020s. Then you have Nixon, Nixon. in the 1970s yeah. with Watergate. You have, um, uh, uh, the 19, the 1920s, you have, uh, uh, Harding and Teapot Dome in the 1870s you have grant and is it the credit mobility Yeah, is, yes, is that the yes. name of that mm-hmm. scandal you're right and then and then 1820s kind of you have the corrupt bargain of 1824 to give quincy adams the election arguably mm. it's more about an election than it is about um yeah so it, morality, but also yeah. also in in 1870s um uh, the way that hayes got into power was also pretty pretty suspect every 50 years when you go back almost to the founding you have a president that's kind of known for significant corruption and why that is. Um, and by the way, each of those presidents I named are, are different roles um, in, in my schematic. So I can't really explain that. Um, it might be generational again. It might be that after Nixon went down in um, 74 in those um, midterm elections, because he went down in August, then in those midterm elections, you had this group that became known as the Watergate babies, right? Which are like all these freshman Congress uh, congresspeople where it's super about ethics and Carter in the next election was like, I will not lie to you. And it's all about ethics, right? Who knows? Maybe politics is too broken now. But if history is any guide, then when Trump does get out of office one way or the other – I suspect you're going to have a big wave of people that are, you know, looking to contrast themselves with the era that just ended and be all about ethics and transparency and all that. And then that will taper and peter out over time and the cycle will start anew. I I just think everything is cycles.
6: It'll be written into law that that an American president or prospective presidential candidate needs to declare their taxes for a start. That's
7: already in some states, for sure, in some primaries. So what what next
6: for you, sir? Uh, You're you potentially going to look at uh, the UK political system. What next? What can you do with, with this model?
7: You know, it's actually funny for the UK system. Um, I actually did um, research at uh, Cambridge University when I was in grad school. At one point, I actually put all the British prime ministers on a similar type of, uh, of, of spreadsheet because I was trying to understand. I was doing research in industrial policy um, post-World War II. So I started to notice some stuff there. So probably, you know, UK Prime Minister is, is, it's harder because it's, I know I guess it's like formally scheduled every five years, but it doesn't actually turn out that way. Um, uh, uh, not not and, at, at all. It,
6: it, 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 it's a proper mess. And we've only just really yeah. changed the law in the last five years. So basically any, so a maximum term of a government was five years, but any government could call an election actually whenever they wanted within that five years.
7: Sure, sure, sure. Right, right. So I think that, the UK would actually be good in that respect because although there's not the regularity of of elections that we have here, we're just every four years like clockwork. If this is due to a fundamental thing about human nature and generations, mm-hmm. then something should hold. You know, um, th- then you probably do have. You know, Attlee as the start of one era that ends with, you know, Callahan, and then Thatcher is the start of another era that's mm-hmm. arguably still going on, you know, within, you, then you had kind of Blair in the middle, and then you still have a bunch of conservatives after that. You know, one could argue that if it is, historically speaking, similar, then, um, you know, Johnson currently could be the ender of the Thatcher era, and then there may be a transformational progressive that comes along in the UK, you know, and that probably, given all the drama going on right now, probably wouldn't be super surprising.
10: My friends, good morning everybody, my friends. Well, we did it! We did it! We pulled it off, didn't we? We pulled it off, we we broke the deadlock, we ended the gridlock, we smashed the roadblock, and in this glorious, glorious pre-breakfast moment, before a new dawn rises on a new day, and a new government. And I, of course, want to congratulate absolutely everybody involved in securing the biggest conservative majority since the 1980s. Literally, 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 literally as I look around, literally before many of you were born. And uh, with this mandate and this majority, we will at last be able to do what? Get Brexit done! Been paying attention. Uh, because this, this election means that getting Brexit done is now the irrefutable, irresistible, unarguable decision of the British people.
6: Uh, one thing which um, we didn't actually uh, remark upon, your last era you call the humanist era, Right. And you say from 2020, you're going to have a transformer. you are going to serve two terms, then a continuer for one in 2028. will also be a Democrat. So right. transformer will be a Democrat. Let's just underline that. Then your uh, triangulator uh, will come along in 2032, which will be a Republican. Um, why is it the humanist era for a start off?
7: Like the way I define eras is like, what was the conversation that was happening? So basically FDR set the conversation that happened over, over, the, over the rest of that era, for every president under that era. Mm-hmm. Reagan set the conversation that happened um, you know, for the rest of that era. So whoever the next president is, and this may not become super apparent until several years or maybe even a decade or two in, but I suspect that the next 40 years, tech is going to get crazy and climate change is going to get real. And you know, and I'm in the tech industry, so you know so I see firsthand um, the um the speed that that tech grows, and it's a lot more uh, exponential of a curve than than most people realize. like you know as human beings we're we're not really accustomed to things that are that are exponential, but it's moving incredibly fast and and climate change, like I, I actually tend to be um, generally techno optimistic I, I I think that we will come up with things that are going to save the planet, but I think it's going to be painful in the meantime. And I think we still need to like work really hard to, to get there. But I think that, um, that those two things are going to be real. And what those have in common is what do you do with all the people as more and more jobs are automated? What happens to the people as, as more and more land becomes uninhabitable or, or you have to, you know, do different things. What happens to the people? And so I think that over the next 40 years, um, if you put it this way, it's, um, you know, 2019 now. So you think about how different our lives look now than, than Mm -hmm. it did in 1979, right? Um, you know, 40 years prior. And so as different as that is, I think it's going to be even more different because tech has an exponential curve. Um, that's, you know, that 2060 is going to look super, super different than, than 2020 does. And I just think the conversation of this next era is we have these societies that have all these, this abundance, like, you know, like in, in general of, of the entire society, we're actually doing very well. Um, You know, like output is great. Technological capabilities are great. We're producing lots of food, all that. The distribution needs some work for sure, but the capabilities are great. And so I just think a lot of it's going to be about the continuing of this, like, timeless battle perhaps about how do you grow things and then how do you share things? Um, you know, that that's always going to continue a- as it should. And you know, maybe, maybe in 40 years I'll revisit the name and, and it'll be something that's different. But from our vantage point now going into it, it seems to me the main conversation is going to be about, we got a lot of people and a lot of wealth, but it's not distributed very well. And also how do we distribute things while also still maintaining growth? Like I'm very much a capitalist. I'm very much into markets. And I think it's the most efficient way. I'm a businessman. And, and so I love all that stuff. But I still think we need to have a you know society where people are taken care of, you know, and we don't have people starving or freezing or any of those things. And so I just think that that's going to be the conversation. And I think that whoever wins in 2020, should my thesis be correct about being a transformational progressive, we are going to be continuing the conversation that that president lays out for the next 40 years, and it's going to be about people.
6: So, Misha Leibovich, thank you for coming on to 10 American Presidents and sharing your your Isaac Asimov-like take on social psycho history, uh, but specifically looking at the cycles, the, the current patterns of American politics uh, and how it plays out through society. Thank you for coming on to the show, sir.